Hey everybody, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 23rd episode of the RIT Podcast. Soon I'll be joined by Sabrina Nanji of Queen's Park Observer for her monthly update on the goings-on ahead of June's Ontario provincial election. But first, we're going to start with, what else? Some polls. We'll start with a federal poll from Abacus Data. This was done between November 25th and November 30th, surveying 2,025 Canadians online. It asked about the throne speech from last week, finding that only 17% of Canadians were either very or pretty familiar with it, including the 48% who said they only heard about it. 61% of those with any knowledge of the throne speech felt it was, quote, a good direction for Canadian public policy for the coming years. The poll found approval for the federal government at 44%, with disapproval at 41%. No real change from where things were in August, or really before the last election campaign. But Justin Trudeau's negative ratings did drop to 41%, which is the lowest since early August. His positive rating was 40%. For Aaron O'Toole, his negatives have hit a new high of 45%. It has been ticking up by a point a month since the election. His positives are down to 23% a drop of eight points since the end of the election, and more or less back to where he was before the campaign began. Same with Jagmeet Singh, whose positives are down from 46% at the end of the campaign to 42% today, but he has the best net rating by far, as only 23% have a negative view of the NDP leader. On voting intentions, Abacus found the Liberals at 32%, the Conservatives at 30%, and the NDP at 20%, so no real change from where things were last month. So we're really seeing stability since the election campaign. No post-election honeymoon for the Liberals, and Aaron O'Toole not managing to keep the relatively better numbers he had put together during the campaign, so it's status quo for the time being. Next, let's look at uh, a new Quebec provincial poll from Léger. That was done for Le Journal de Montréal. This was in the field between November 26th and November 28th, surveying 1,024 Quebecers online. It's enough to put fear in the hearts of the opposition parties. The uh, CAQ leads with 46% support among Quebecers, giving them a 26-point lead over the Liberals, who trail with 20% support. Ouch. Both Quebec Solidaire and the Parti Québécois had 13%, while the Quebec Conservatives had 5%. The CAQ has 52% support among Francophones, with the PQ in a distant second at 16%, Quebec Solidaire at 14%, and the Liberals at just 9%, single digits. Among non-Francophones, though, the Liberals do lead with 57% support, but the CAQ is still registering 23%, which is a pretty good number for the CAQ. Quebec Solidaire is the only other party with a pulse among Anglophones and Allophones at 9%. Regionally, the CAQ is ahead in the Montreal area, 11 points over the Liberals, and have 51% support in and around Quebec City. There, it's worth noting the Conservatives are actually second, though with just 15%. And in the rest of the province, the CEQ is at 52%, with the PQ at 15%. So this is real dominance for the CEQ and would certainly deliver them a huge majority. So they're looking pretty good less than a year out from the next election. Do they have any weaknesses? Well, Leger finds that a majority think the government is doing a good job on the pandemic, economic development, promoting Quebec culture, protecting the French language, managing public finances and education. So not much of an opening for the opposition parties there, except maybe on health. They're only a third think the government is doing a good job in long-term care facilities for seniors and on making sure everyone has access to a family doctor. Healthcare is a big issue, but the opposition would have to be more trusted to fix the system. And of course, both the Liberals and the Parti Québécois are the ones who have run the system for nearly all of the last 50 years. 
And there just isn't a lot of support for the opposition parties. Leger finds that only 28% of voters would even consider voting for the Liberals, 25% would consider voting for the PQ, and 22% for Quebec Solidaire. So there isn't a very high ceiling for any of those parties, certainly not enough to win an election. The CAQ even has some room for growth, as 56% of Quebecers say they would consider voting for the party. And none of the opposition leaders are liked all that much on who would make the best premier. François Legault was at 48%. But next on the list, it was a tie between Quebec Solidaire's Gabriel Nadeau-Dubois and the Liberals' Dominique Anglade, each at just 9%. So the opposition parties will have a lot of work to do to prevent themselves from being nearly wiped out next October. If Legault and the CAQ can avoid any big mistakes... The election might not be very competitive at all. Lastly, I also wanted to look at a poll that came out of New Brunswick. Now, every quarter, Narrative Research, which is a polling firm based in Halifax, they come out with new polling numbers for all four provinces in Atlantic Canada. The latest surveys, they show strong satisfaction ratings for Andrew Fury in Newfoundland and Labrador, Dennis King in Prince Edward Island, and the new government of Tim Houston in Nova Scotia. I wrote about these polls a little bit in this week's edition of the Weekly Writ, so you can check that out on the website, therit.ca. But things aren't as pretty in New Brunswick. Narrative surveyed 800 New Brunswickers between November 3rd and 24th by telephone. According to Narrative, government satisfaction has dropped to its lowest level in two decades. The poll finds just 31% of New Brunswickers completely or mostly satisfied. That's down 26 points since August. It's just an enormous drop in such a short amount of time. The Liberals now lead in voting intention with 38% support of 9 points and their highest level in over a year. PCs have dropped to second with just 28%, while the Greens have also taken a hit and have landed at 14%, down from 22% in August. The NDP is at 13% and the People's Alliance has 5%. Both of those numbers are largely unchanged. But here's perhaps the worst thing for Blaine Higgs. He is raiding behind interim leader of the Liberals. The party hasn't named a permanent replacement for Kevin Vickers since he lost the 2020 election. But Roger Melanson has 23% support on preferred premier compared to 19% for Higgs. In the last year, Higgs' numbers have dropped 20 points. Now, there isn't an election scheduled in New Brunswick until 2024, but these numbers show the PCs have been going through a, a bit of a rough patch with a big spike in COVID-19 cases and a QP strike during the time when the poll was in the field. But the numbers for Higgs and the PCs will be something to keep an eye on in New Brunswick over the next little while. So let's check the countdown clock as of today, December 3rd. We're 181 days away from the next Ontario provincial election. As she's been doing every month, Sabrina Nanji is back to give us an update on how things are shaping up in Ontario politics. Sabrina writes the Queen's Park Observer newsletter, and you can and should check that out at qpobserver.com. Hey, Sabrina, what's new in Toronto? Hey, Eric. Lots of action at Queen's Park since we last spoke. There's a big Auditor General's report, the annual phone book of government spending failures, a.k.a. Christmas for critics, and Omicron has hit Ontario. But let's dig into the campaign side of things. Lots of action on that front, too. It's officially six months out from Election Day on June 2nd, and all parties are kicking things into high gear, with everything from splashy campaign promises to a big fundraising push to going out on the stump and door knocking almost daily. One thing that's got Queen's Park buzzing these days is fresh polling data from Ecos Research that pegs support for other non-mainstream parties at 11%. That was pretty significant, according to the pollster, and might be encouraging news for Tory spin-off parties like the New Blues and Ontario First, the latter of which has ties to the People's Party of Canada. 
Now, according to ECOS, a clear majority of these respondents support the PPC at the federal level, but it remains to be seen whether that will translate to more votes next spring. As you pointed out on the writ, with the discrepancies between federal polling and actual results, the PPC might not get 11% of the vote, but maybe closer to the almost 5% showing that they had had in September. Meanwhile, all political parties are making a year-end push for donations. Elections aren't cheap, and the bigger party cash arsenal means a lot more resources to do things like running campaign advertising on TV and social media, doing community outreach, and pretty much everything else you need to win. The PCs and the Liberals in particular are putting on big-ticket fundraisers. We're talking hundreds and thousands of dollars featuring high-profile headliners like Premier Doug Ford and Great Captain Stephen Del Duca. There are also calls and email blasted to supporters almost every day, and that seems to be paying off. The latest standings, as I reported in Queen's Park Observer this week, and according to Elections Ontario, shows the governing PCs have raised a whopping $7.5 million for their coffers so far this year, with the NDP and Liberals trailing much farther behind, almost neck and neck, with about $1.2 million and $1.1 million respectively. That's probably good news for some Liberals who had raised a measly 200000 in the second quarter of this year, and maybe not so great news for the New Democrats, as the third-place Liberals are closing the gap with the official opposition party. Now, I should mention one big caveat here is that Elections Ontario doesn't disclose smaller donations under 200 bucks. So those numbers I just mentioned are actually a little higher, and especially for the NDP. In October, that party said that based on their internal numbers, which include smaller donors, they've actually pulled in more than two million so far. The opposition parties are also battling it out with splashy campaign pledges this week. I got the scoop on the Liberals proposing to scrap ministerial zoning orders. You know, those controversial tools the Ford government uses prolifically to bypass planning and fast track development. And okay, there are many exceptions to the Liberals' promise. Uh, they wouldn't apply to so-called critical projects like long-term care homes, but nonetheless, it's a bold pledge on a controversial topic. Housing affordability, at the end of the day, is clearly shaping up to be a major campaign issue. Meanwhile, we've got the NDP proposing to bring in a $20 minimum wage by 2026, one-upping the PC's move to raise it to $15 in January. The Tories have been putting out many labor-friendly policies, and this could be the NDP's way of rallying organized workers to the polls. And let's not forget about Premier Doug Ford and the PCs, who have also been out and about. There are loads of infrastructure and spending announcements happening these days, you know, that stuff that plays well in election times. Ford was in the Battleground 905 this week, pumping up a major new hospital, and he also met up with the local Filipino community. A possible wrench in all of this glad-handing is rising COVID cases and the new Omicron variant. Ford won't want the pandemic to sideline him any more than it already has. He loves to campaign, he says it himself, so I don't think we'll see much tougher lockdowns like we have in the past, but rather moves to ensure the hospital system doesn't get overwhelmed. Booster eligibility, for example, is already expanding. So for now, it feels like it's touch and go at Queen's Park, but there are no signs of slowing down on the campaign side of things. Thanks again to Sabrina. And now let's uh, get to some of your questions. Simon Carmichael, he asked, 
Quels sont les gouvernements qui risquent de souffrir le plus de l'inflation, de la hausse de coût de vie? So, which governments are at greatest risk from inflation and uh, the rising cost of living in terms of, you know, government survival? I would say that it, it is the federal government that is definitely the most at risk. We are seeing that the conservatives have been hitting very hard on it. It has really become their main issue right now. And uh, clearly they see this as a vulnerability for the liberals. And cost of living in general is always a big issue and is particularly one that has been really top of mind for the last few years, if you forget about the pandemic. But um, inflation is certainly something that the liberals have to be worried about. Now, there's lots of debates about how much the federal government is to blame for it and how much control they actually have over it. A lot of it is global factors. But for the average voter, that kind of thing doesn't really matter. The average voter has to blame someone when they're voting and they're angry about something. The inflation issue is one where the liberals are particularly vulnerable, particularly because, you know, I think if a lot of people do think about inflation and what causes it, the deficit and spending by the federal government is something that would probably come to mind. So I think that's why the liberals are particularly vulnerable. And if you just look at the history of it, when inflation was a big issue in the 1970s and early 80s, when inflation was the highest in Canada, there was a lot of volatility in politics. There was the Pierre Trudeau minority government. They went from majority to minority in 1972. They were able to regain power in 1974. Trudeau's liberals were defeated in 1979. And then Clark was defeated in 1980. And then there was the big landslide Brian Mulroney victory in 1984. So it is certainly a time with um, some risk for sitting governments. And it's not just for sitting governments. It can also be a risk for the opposition parties if their solutions or the proposed uh, remedies for inflation are not really very good. The 1974 election uh, was one that turned in part on Robert Stanfield's proposal to freeze prices to deal with inflation. Now, he was the PC leader, and when he was proposing this, there was a lot of confusion about what exactly he was proposing, and uh, Pierre Trudeau very famously derided Robert Stanfield's position on inflation, saying you can't just freeze prices, you can't just go zap, you're frozen. Uh, it, it ridiculed uh, Stanfield, and this turned out to be his last election as leader. So there is some risk on both sides. If we're thinking about provincial levels, so there was an Ipsos poll on inflation that was done uh, just a few weeks ago. Concern about inflation was highest in Alberta, the Prairies, and Ontario. Now, in terms of provincial politics, probably in Alberta, and the prairies, particularly Saskatchewan, political leaders will be able to deflect that to the federal government because the federal government's not very popular anyway. Uh, but the cost of living could be a real issue in Ontario, and it could be a problematic one for Ford. And you kind of see that the PCs there are aware of it. They are pushing issues on cost of living. The minimum wage increase is one of those. Uh, so I think this will be one of the big issues of the 2022 election campaign in Ontario. And every party is going to be talking about cost of living. I was talking earlier about the numbers in Quebec. I'm not sure if inflation is going to take down Legault. Brett Odom asks, With all the talk of leadership trouble, what are some good quantitative indicators that a leader is actually vulnerable to a challenge? Basically, what's the line that takes us from bad poll numbers Kathleen Wynne to party revolt Jason Kenney? I think it's hard to find the quantitative indicators for that because I think it has to do a lot with context. Uh, you think about Kathleen Wynne. She was at the tail end of a very long liberal run in government and... I think there has to be a belief within the party that the leader is the problem and that someone could do better. Uh, you think about Andrew Scheer after the 2019 campaign. I think he was a good example of that, that I think there was a belief within the Conservative Party that he wasn't going to be able to do better. He wasn't going to have a better campaign and he wasn't going to be able to grow the base. I think that's the question here is whether Aaron O'Toole 
is the problem or if he has potential. Um, and I think it also has a lot to do with the history of the party. Some parties, you know, knife their leaders more than others. There's the strength of the opposition and also what the parties think of the opposition. You know, the United Conservatives in Alberta really think that the New Democrats are a complete disaster of a government. And if they came in, it would be catastrophic. And it, there's an ideological division there. So the fear of losing to an opposition, particularly if it's an opposition you are greatly opposed to, uh, might have some might have some influence there. And also just the proximity to an election. The closer you are to an election, the less likely leaders uh, are to be challenged and be toppled. But if we're looking for some quantitative indicators, uh, you know, you look at approval ratings, you look at some of the ones who have been forced out, who are almost forced out. Alison Redford in Alberta, her approval ratings before she stepped aside were about 18 to 23 percent. Uh, Greg Selinger, he was the Manitoba premier. Uh, he faced an internal party revolt, cabinet revolt in, in 2014. And at the end of that year, his approval ratings was down to 17 percent. He ended up winning a leadership challenge um, and so remained as leader to lose the election in uh, 2016. Sticking with Manitoba, you have Brian Pallister. The last numbers we'd seen from the Angus Reed Institute in June had his approval rating of 33%. But then you can look at someone like Kathleen Wynne. Her approval rating was awful for a very long time. It was in the mid to high teens for pretty much the last two years of her premiership. So um, that wasn't enough to push liberals to push her out. Maybe again, because they didn't think anybody else was going to do any better. I think in general, once a leader's approval ratings are in the 20s, I think that's when they get very vulnerable uh, because... You know, if your approval rating's in the 30% range or above 30%, that's usually enough to at least be competitive in an election or win an election. But once you're in the 20s, you don't win an election with 20% of the vote. So um, I think I think a lot of it is contextual, but uh, those approval ratings are something to keep an eye on. And for Jason Kenney, if they don't start ticking up a little bit, the leadership problems he has aren't going to go away. James Twiss asks... How many local campaigns of each party qualified for the expense rebate in the 2021 election? Any trends when compared to the 2019 entitlements? So the rules for Elections Canada are that if a candidate gets 10% of the vote, they're eligible to have 60% of their election expenses reimbursed, uh, which is, you know, a huge amount of money that can be used for the next campaign. And it's also one of the reasons why I think the idea that we don't have public funding of parties is... Uh, just a ridiculous thing to suggest because with all of the tax credits that parties get on their uh, on donations, with all the reimbursements they get from Elections Canada, the amount of every dollar that is donated to a party that is actually taxpayer funded or supported is extremely high, and in some cases can be, um, you know, nearing 100%. When you think about the fact that a dollar that is reimbursed at 60% and then spent in the next election is also going to be reimbursed again at 60% and it goes on and on and on forever. We do have public funding of parties in Canada. It's just indirect. And maybe that's more palatable for uh, political parties, but it is still what it is. But I looked at these numbers for the 2021 campaign. So how many candidates did each party have reached the 10% threshold? And so we'll be eligible for uh, election reimbursements. The Conservatives led the way. They had 318 candidates who reached that threshold, so all but um, 19. They did have one riding where they didn't have a candidate. The Liberals were second with 315, and the New Democrats had 262 that reached the threshold. The Bloc had 72, so they only had six that didn't. The People's Party had 25. The Greens had just six. Now, compared to 2019, uh, not a big change for the Liberals. They had 318 in 2019, so there was three fewer candidates who reached the threshold. 
the conservatives increased by 12 because they only had 306. So they had a few more candidates who reached the threshold. And this was Quebec because in 2019, uh, of the 32 ridings where they didn't reach the 10% threshold, 31 were in Quebec. The other one was Davenport in Toronto. But in 2021, the 19 seats where they didn't reach the threshold were all in Quebec. So they were able to increase their floor a little bit in Quebec and get themselves above the 10% threshold in more ridings in the province. Uh, for the New Democrats, they increased the number of ridings where they got a reimbursement by 27. And the People's Party only had one last time, Maxim Bernier's, but now they had 25. So that makes a huge difference for the People's Party. They're going to have a lot more money to spend next time because of those reimbursements. Uh, the party that lost the most was the Greens, down to six. Six is to be at over 10% support in six ridings. That's it. Uh, that's not very good. And in the last election in 2019, it was 49. So that is a huge drop for the Greens. And so their money problems are going to get worse because if they were counting on any of those reimbursements to make up the deficits that they might be running, uh, they're not going to get a lot of them. And so that'll be a, a, a problem for the Greens. But that was a good question. Uh, this last one is not really a political question. It was from Kyle Visvanathan. He asked, what was on your Spotify wrapped top podcast list? Uh, so I actually listened to my podcast on Apple, not on Spotify. So I didn't have a nice little list. Uh, but of the podcasts that I listen to um, the most, you know, I listen to a lot of different podcasts, in time, mostly because I'm just trying to find something to listen to. But um, I do have to say I've really enjoyed uh, the Strategist podcast this year. Uh, speaking of which, Zane and Corey, great job. And uh, you have my number. Um, I've been listening to Caucus, uh, which is from uh, Radio Canada, which kind of goes over federal and usually Quebec politics. Uh, and it's hosted by Edek Castonguay. It's a good weekly and a roundup of what's going on in uh, sort of French political discussions. And uh, I also like listening to hockey podcasts a lot to get a break from politics. I don't want to always listen to politics, so I, I listen to a number of different hockey podcasts. So I like uh, 32 Thoughts with Jeff Merrick and Elliot Friedman. Uh, that's always a good listen. And uh, if you have any suggestions for other podcasts, let me know. So in just three days, we'll be marking the 100th anniversary of the federal election of 1921. Now, I'm not going to do a full installment of the Every Election Project on the 1921 election now, because I'm actually planning to take a more in-depth look at this election on the website and maybe some videos and stuff in the not-too-distant future, because my long-term goal is to do a series on the elections that were held between the First and Second World Wars. So the, you know, 1921, 1925, 26, 30, 1935, maybe 1940. I find this was just an absolutely fascinating time in Canadian political history, probably the most interesting. I know there's a, a lot of people who love the, uh, you know, the time of constitutional uh, discussions in the 1970s and 1980s, but I think the elections in the 1920s and 1930s were the, really the most interesting. You have the King Bing Affair, you have the Great Depression, you have the creation of the CCF, social credit, the collapse of the two old party systems, System. It's just really a great time in political history. The 1921 election was really one of the most important, though, in Canadian history, one of the first elections that looks a little familiar to us still today. At the time, the Conservatives had been in power for a decade and had brought the country through the First World War, but it was a very damaging time for the Conservatives, who had set up a quote-unquote union government that was primarily Conservatives. It ran on a pro-conscription platform in the incredibly divisive and really ugly 1917 election. They won that vote, but the party had burned its bridges with Quebec and among French Canadians across the country. And by 1921, uh, people were looking for a change. Robert Borden, who had led the party for nearly two decades, he 
came in in the early 1900s. Uh, he was gone, and in his place was the somewhat cold Arthur Meehan, one of the architects of conscription and the Conservatives' changes to the election rules to help them win in 1917. The Conservatives had no prospects in Quebec, those were done, but they had also lost a lot of their support in Western Canada to the rising farmer and progressive movements, which had already won some provincial elections. So really, all the Conservatives had left was Ontario, and even there, the United Farmers were a problem for them too. Liberals are now under Mackenzie King, who was the first leader who wasn't named Wilfrid Laurier since the 1880s. King was hoping to get the support of the farmers and progressives, but he wasn't taking a firm enough position on the issue of tariffs to get the progressives on side. But he did have Quebec, which his party would 100% sweep in 1921. The progressives and farmers, they're, they're a really interesting movement. I've talked about them a couple times already on the podcast. They were aimed at destroying the traditional parties, the old system of political patronage, they believed in something called group government, that it wouldn't be parties, but different economic groups that should be represented in Parliament. In some ways, they are a forerunner of the CCF and the NDP, but also of social credit. And they're really just an interesting kind of splinter group that really gave rise to the three-party system in Canada. Anyway, when the election was over, the Conservatives were really given a beating. They dropped about 100 seats to end with 49, while the Liberals won 118, and the Progressives took 61, dominating in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, but also winning some seats in Ontario and a couple of other places. The Independent Labour Party also elected a few MPs, including J.S. Woodsworth, who would later go on to lead the CCF, which was, the, of course, the precursor to today's New Democrats. It was a slim minority government, something really unheard of in Canadian politics up to then, but King could count on support from the progressives to keep in office. In fact, because of their political beliefs about group government, the progressives didn't even want to form the official opposition. Even though they had more seats than the conservatives, that job went to third-place finisher Arthur Meehan. The 1920s would feature three elections between King and Meehan, two leaders who despised each other, and the progressives would eventually fall apart. But this new realignment of politics in Canada would, in some ways, stick with us for the rest of the century. And that'll be it for the podcast this week. If you aren't a subscriber to theRit.ca, you missed the free edition of the Weekly Writ on Wednesday. In addition to a look at some of the latest polls and election news, I also did a writing profile for the upcoming Ontario election and took a look back at a past Ontario election, the Prohibition election of 1926. So you can check that out and subscribe if you want to receive future editions of the Weekly Writ. Also, I am once again asking to please subscribe to my YouTube channel. That's, uh, that's free, and it does help me out a lot. So that's a wrap for today. I hope you have a good weekend, and thanks for listening.